Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is CK Lin. Noble Warriors where I interview other entrepreneurs about their journey from warrior to commander to king. We'll deconstruct their mindset, mental models, and actionable tactics so that you can go on and build and navigate your own journey and make the kind of impact and fulfillment that you want. My next guest is international best-selling author and serial entrepreneur, Jay Semet. He has raised hundreds of millions of dollars for startups. He has partners with the who's who's of our time, with the likes of Bill Gates, Steven Spielberg, Steve Jobs. He's a former Nasdaq company CEO and independent vice chairman of Deloitte. He's the author of Future Proofing You, where he made a case study of taking someone who was on welfare to a million dollar in revenue in one year. Jay dropped some serious knowledge bombs with actual tactics in our conversation. Here are a few. After you change the voice in your head, changing the world of business is easy. How will your past mistakes inform your future decisions is a much better use of your mental cycles. When rejected, they're not saying that I can do it. They're saying that they can do it with me. It's actually their loss. Being happy creates the best conditions for success. Your brain, your mood, your appearance, your sales ability, your decision making, and your creativity. Today can be better than yesterday, and I have the power to make it so. The failure of our current education and economic system is that we fail 90% of Americans to get their piece of the American dream. There are two axes to help you select a problem that's suitable for your soul market fit. First axis, total addressable market size. Second axis, the passion that you have about this problem by watching where the 800-pound gorillas are spending big bucks you'll see where the waves are being created next. And his number one hack to get connected with the likes of Steven Spielberg, Bill Gates, who are impossible to connect. Find a big company with an existing audience that you want to reach, and you can offer your product and service as a customer acquisition tool, uh, as a way to help them to be hip and cool again. Only a small percentage of your decisions are going to be home runs. So make more decisions to increase your home runs. And why he advocates for selling out early versus holding out for a higher offer. And specifically, why a specific cash and equity split is a wise choice. Please enjoy my conversation with Jay Semet. Jay, thank you so much for being here. Jumping right in. You could have done many, many things. You could have started up another company, you could have started a fund, you could have hired lots of people, you could have started a podcast, a media company, a startup accelerator, a foundation, express challenge. Why a book? <laughs> Out of all those choices that you have, why a book? And especially as a second, on, second time author too. Yeah. So I never thought I'd write a second book. So we'll start with that one. The first one came out of when you start reflecting on what you've learned in life, if you would have told me when I was in uh, high school or in my 20s that dozens of my friends would become billionaires, I'd ask you, what are you smoking or snorting or something? Because like, I didn't know any millionaires. Uh, my dad was a public school teacher, uh, grew up like everybody else. And when you realize that there's been a change of how businesses are created, how you can create businesses without any capital. Uh, there's no gatekeepers blocking you. And I watched, and the people that made it weren't brighter. They weren't better educated. They didn't come from the right families. They didn't have connections. 
but they looked at the world different. And so when I had built companies and sold companies and gone public and done all the things that, that, that you can do until it gets repetitive, if you're not motivated by money anymore, um, I decided to teach this at the university level, at the largest engineering university, uh, uh, USC. And first uh, time teaching, uh, two students did $150 million the first year. So it can be taught. So I wrote Disrupt You, and it really breaks down how to achieve. And it really starts with the reason why it's called Disrupt You is everybody thinks of changing the world, but most people don't think of changing themselves. And if you can change that voice in your head that's holding you back, that fear that I can't do it, I'm not good enough, whatever it might be, you can get past that and change that. Changing the world of business is easy. So I did that, um, spent five years circumnavigating the globe, giving speeches all over. The book comes out in a whole bunch of languages. This year it comes out in Urdu, Icelandic, Polish. Um, it's crazy, right? I don't say that to, to, to humble brag or brag. I'm just, it's, it's just crazy. The, the truths in the book work and they work in first world, third world, anywhere. So you get a lot of fan mail as a writer. And it's the greatest thing about being a writer. When you're a public CEO, your inbox is, you suck, you suck, I hate you. This is what's blowing up. You know, <laughs> shareholders hate you. Investors hate you. Clients, you know, the buck stops with you when your world is, you know, you're basically a firefighter. That's your job. When you help people, they send you love letters. They tell you how, you know, their life turned around. So I would get a bunch of those. And occasionally, usually from a millennial, I get a note that went like, your book was real motivational, but I could never do this. Mm. And that aided me. I'm very thin-skinned. Jay, Jay does not like being told that Jay can't do something. And what that person's saying is, I didn't get to them. I didn't convince mm. them that they had it within themselves. So it was gnawing at me. How do you prove to somebody that anybody can do it? So I decided to put the reputation on the line. I'm going to pick somebody that is a starting point lower than almost anybody that will read the book. Somebody whose parents were on welfare, grew up on welfare, was couch surfing at different homes, basically homeless. And could I mentor that person from that stage of their life to millionaire in one year? Now, the ground rules were really important. I gave him no capital, no money. I bought him a couple of pizzas at our lunch meetings. That's it. I gave him no connections because it'd be real easy. It's like the CEO's daughter that sells the most Girl Scout cookies. Yeah, well, dad's got 100,000 employees. They each were told to buy a box. No, I introduced him to no one. And third, I didn't tell him what business to do. So complete level playing field. And he was new. He was an immigrant new to the U.S., so he didn't have a social network. He didn't have people to call on. It was really, you know, my fair lady or Pygmalion, if you know the story. And so I did this for a year, and Vin Clancy followed the 12 truths in Future Proofing You, and I'll wreck the ending. Month 11, he became a millionaire. Now, it wasn't easy. He didn't just kick back. He worked harder for one year of his life than most people were willing to do. But now he can live the rest of his life in a way that most people can't. So I think it's fair trade. You know, yeah. he'd rather be, be Warren Buffett, be over 50 when he made 99% of his money. Yeah, it's kind of good. I'm over 50. You can still get around and, and do stuff. Or would you rather be Kylie Jenner and hit a billion dollars at 22? 
And you go, well, she had a family with connections and the Kardashians. Yeah, but none of them were billionaires. So what did she do different? And every 48 hours, there's a new self-made billionaire. What are so, they doing? So, so I, have a, I have a question for you. So let me actually sure. make a comment and then I'll, I have a follow-up question for you, if you don't mind. So sure. from the book, Vin, I'm quoting Vin himself. He said, I have no fear of not working again. I will need to work for someone else. I can create my own opportunities using the skills that I learned. And I think that's a fundamental shift. You literally change yeah. the way he looks like, how he can create new opportunities. So you know what cracks me up on that? Or what, what, what cracks me up about, about that is most people hate their job. They complain about it. They go home every day. I mean, it's actually the employer's fault. They pay you just enough not to quit, but not enough to care. So most people are like going through this miserable cycle. And then when the pandemic or something hits and you lose your job, you're even more upset. You lost something that you hated doing, as opposed to saying, now I'm free. So that's really strange. And the way I look at life is, so today you traded a day at your job that you hated. Big deal. But I got this gray beard. And here's what I can tell you that I've learned. That day turns into a week. That week turns into a month. That turns into a year. That turns into you're an old person that's miserable. Go talk to your grandparents, go to senior home and ask these people what their biggest regrets in life are. And it won't be what they failed at. It'll be what they failed to try. And so Vin got that right at the beginning. He's got nothing to lose. Yeah. What, what a blessing that he has met you. So I have a, a follow-up question for you there. That is, you chose to work with one person and one person only. Curious to know, why not, let's say, Shark Tank style or, you know, kind of documentary, you know, a team of people so that way you can feature different perspectives? You know, you're, you're, you're a man of media. So why, why, why a singular person, a book format versus a documentary well, series? First of know? all, great question that no one's asked. Um, I did sell the rights to my first book to turn into a TV show. CBS spent $2 million making the pilot. It was called uh, uh, Who Wants to Be a Mogul? It was very similar to Shark Tank. My big difference was there's one thing that I don't like about Shark Tank is there's people that get up there and they've mortgaged their house, they've done their whole life, they've, they've done all the sacrifice, and they're then humiliated. That doesn't inspire people to do stuff. So my twist on it and, uh, was that somebody comes up there with a problem, like uh, we had in the pilot. Um, a mom just went inside to answer the phone just for a second, and her child drowned in the pool. Mm. Couldn't somebody invent something so that if something breaks the surface of a pool, bells and whistles go off? Mm. So a person would pitch that with no idea of how to run a business. And then I had teams of hackathon winners that would then bid and say, if you work with us, we'll give you 10% of the company or we'll give you 5%. You know? So mm. it'd be everybody's idea turns into a successful package. And then once the, they stay up 24 hours building it, then they go in, for, in front of our, our moguls, all billionaires, uh, to get funded. So mm. everybody wins and you actually see the process. So that being said, here's how Hollywood works. You get in there, use everything you can. You get the most money you could imagine spent on a pilot. The pilot tests fantastic with both males and females. They did a great job. 
but it was brought in by an executive who then got caught up in the whole Me Too and doing horrible things. So mm. he gets fired in the second, an executive gets fired, whatever they're working on yeah. disappears. The new guy has new ideas. Yeah. So that's why, so I tried the TV show. Um, Can you reshop it somewhere else? Uh, um, Rights-wise, no. I, 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 no. I didn't have the power no. to have the rights revert back to me. That being mm. said, the difference between the first book, Disrupt You, and Future Proofing You is people. some people felt I didn't break it down step by step enough. So I switched publisher. Wiley's a publisher known for you know those type of step by step books. And I really tried to break it down so you're not only learning it for yourself, but in each chapter you see, well, what did Vin do? And it's kind of fun, you know, kind of to check in on somebody else's progress, you know, throughout the book. I mean, I already gave you the ending, but let me tell you, it was not a, you know, rocket ship to the top. He got hit, I mean, broadsided in the middle of this thing in a way that I never imagined would happen, that probably would have stopped me dead in my tracks. But he was so motivated by that part that it was literally okay, this isn't going to work. Let's find out something that will. It didn't slow him down. I was I was so impressed with Vin. So we're going to get into the details of Vin's journey and then also your journey as a coach uh, in just a moment. I have a more of a, a broader context question, if you don't mind. Sure. Because you, from my perspective, this is a great book. Go out and buy this book. You can watch the journey. Essentially, from my perspective, yeah, there you go. I love that product. Yeah, show the product. Um, right. You you break down the Ikigai format, right? The purpose, the skills, the monetization, and passion, right? And in a very skillful way, in a, in a narrative way. I'm curious to know, why did you focus on making a million dollars? Not, let's say, happiness, not connections, not self-esteem, not self-actualization or self-transcendence. Why focus on the million dollar revenue? So here's where I'm still in touch with, with my roots, all right? When you guys look at me, you see some old dude who's done a lot of stuff. When I avoid mirrors at, as much as I can, I'm still that, that 20 year old starting his first company, not knowing how the world works and like nothing's gonna stop me. And what I realized at that stage, when I talked to most people at that stage, for most people that don't come from money or have money, a million dollars is just this fantasy number that seems beyond grasp, okay? Most people, when they hear that number, think that's enough money to live forever, you know? I'm gonna have a yacht and a plane and Oompa Loompas carry me around to my island, okay? They don't have <laughs> Okay. But a million dollars is a number that if somebody can do that in a year, what can't they achieve? I see. Like the people that have a billion dollars fall into two camps. Either they came up with a business model that was so brilliant, it just, you know, prints money even if you're asleep. I mean, I created the first auction, which Pierre turned into eBay. Okay. Boom. You're suddenly global. You know, Uber, you're suddenly global. Any rational person would do what um, Wozniak did. He turned Apple into this giant company said, wait a second, no need to work. Let me take 10 million and throw the ultimate rock concert with all my favorite bands. I can do that now, right? Um, money isn't a motivator, except at the beginning. When, Steve jo when um, Bill Gates retired, he was the richest man in the world. He, he was philanthropic, he was writing checks, but you know what? Boring. 
And a friend of his went to him and said, you know what? You know what would be really cool? Being the richest man, yeah, that's okay, cool. But you want to be remembered? What if you would be the first person in history to eradicate a disease off the planet? Mm. We have the cure to polio, but how do you have the logistics to get to every person in every hamlet, village, under every rock in the world? Mm. And second he heard that, Bill leaned in. They got him. And once he solved that problem, it was like, you know, we got 2 billion people that don't have access to fresh water. And sewage is a huge problem. Can you make a waterless toilet? And on and on. So he could use his intellect and his skills to achieve things. I would like to be retired. I do not want to run another company. I don't need to. But when somebody came to me with a robotics company that can take all the poison out of our food, sequester 20% of all the um, carbon that goes up in the atmosphere and and end pollution in our rivers and Gulf Stream, I mean, I'm morally obligated to say, if I can help that happen, how could I not? So mm. what you're going to find is passion comes from solving a problem. Happiness comes from helping others. Being an entrepreneur comes from helping others. That's what people don't teach. It isn't, I buy an apple for a dollar and I sell it for two. Okay. That's the zero sum game mentality that we were taught in elementary school. Yeah. 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 If you follow that, you know, I sell an apple for $2 to CK. Now I have $2, right? Well, CK doesn't, it becomes like there's, there's only so much money. Either he has it. I have it. They have it. He got the raise. I hate him. That means I can't get a raise. They're taking our jobs. Immigrants are taking our jobs, foreign countries, robots. Life is miserable. On the other hand, that's not how people are becoming wealthy. If on the other hand, they go, CK, I got this great business idea. I'm starting a business. I'll sell you 10% for $10,000. What do I now have? I have 90% of the company. So I now have $90,000 of equity that I can buy stuff with. I can trade. I can do mergers with. I can do hire people. I can do all kinds of stuff. That 90,000 didn't come from somebody else's pocket. It didn't come from the Federal Reserve. And this is how Jeff Bezos can start Amazon and lose money year after year after year after year after decade and come out the other side as the richest man in the world. Why don't they teach that in the third grade? Yeah. I really appreciate that. Thanks for under underlying why why you did what you did. Um, I think I want to make a, a, a parallel. It reminds me of the four-minute mile. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I right. read about that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So, so similarly, the million dollar in a year, that's a four minute mile in people's so for mind. People that don't know the story, if you go back a hundred years ago, doctors, scientists, everybody, uh, people that knew body uh, kinetics and everything said the human body can't do a four minute mile to fall apart. Da, da, da. One guy eventually does it and you go, okay, that's, that's exciting. But that wasn't the exciting part of the story. The next year, three people do it. The next year, six people do it. Once you show it's possible, people then believe. That's why Vin's story is put in this book. You can relate to Vin. You can say you have more advantages than Vin, you know, but it was a level playing field. And I didn't cherry pick Vin. I didn't say, okay, let me interview 50,000 people, give them my Q tests and figure out that one person that can do it. That would be cheating. So, as I say in the book, I started my relationship with Vin off with a lie, okay? 
I told Vin that I interviewed all these people and out of all the people, he was the one that I saw that had that spark, that something extra that he could do it. And I did that, it's called the Pygmalion effect. So he would believe it. If this, if this successful person, if this guy you know, believes it, I must, he knows what he's talking about, it must be true. When in fact, Vin was the only person I interviewed. First person said, come do this. And he thought that he had something special. And so that got him in that first truth of the 12 truths of having a growth mindset. And mindset is so important. And I know that's what your show talks about all the time. But too many people think it's some hippy-dippy tree-hugging, sit-under-the-pyramid, you know, crap. It isn't. It's biology and physiology. When you're in a positive state of mind, you release serotonin. It puts you in a good mood. It makes you more attractive, more sexually attractive, better to complete sales. It makes you comprehend better, and it makes you see opportunity, not obstacles. So why wouldn't you start your day that way? And I'll tell you how I start my day. I say two things in the mirror. Today can be better than yesterday, and I have the power to make it so. And right then, I'm not only setting my mind into that, but too many people spend today rethinking yesterday's mistake. You're giving up your future for something that you can't change in the past. Whoever you were before, that was then. Whatever didn't work out, that was then. Whoever people think of you and their limitations, that was then. I've been turned down and rejected more times than anybody. And anytime somebody says that they won't fund my business or won't hire me or whatever, they're not saying I can't do it. They're just saying, I can't do it with them. That's mm. their loss, not mine. Right? Beautiful girl when I'm in college, want to go out? No. Her loss. Okay? So if you have that attitude, it doesn't mean that you instantly have every success. But instead of saying, I'm not good enough, I can't do this, I'll never, I'll never pass my real estate test, I'm not smart enough, you say, okay, I learned what I need to know. There's another path. There's another thing I can try. And that growth mindset will get you so far. I want to actually cite one of the things you say in the book, and I want to go a little deeper there, if you don't mind. Sure. The book, you said, success will make you happy. Being happy creates success. And, and it's been proven by research, but you know, you're an entrepreneur, your friends are entrepreneur. As you said, some of your entrepreneur friends may say, ah, you know, enough about this self-help, you know, personal development crap. Can you say a little bit more about sure. what makes you, do you have any stories to illustrate? Oh, sure. You know, when, I was, when I was in, in college, success? Uh, my parents lived down in, in San Diego on an island called Coronado. And you have to take this big, beautiful bridge to get there. And there was a story in the paper that a multimillionaire drove his Mercedes to the top middle of the bridge and jumped off and killed himself. And I'm like, he's got millions of dollars. How can he not be happy? And I know billionaires that have killed themselves. So money is not going to solve anything. Money, money amplifies. That's a talk for another show on another day. You were a good person without money. You're a great person with money. If you're an a-hole without money, you're just a bigger a-hole with money. But happiness, happiness go comes from helping others, solving problems. And the more you can 
heal the earth, the more you can make the world a better place, the happier you will become. Now, if you have a purpose, and I'm a big believer that the purpose of life is to live a life of purpose. If you have a driving force, then the obstacles and the steps that you have to take have meaning. So you're an immigrant. You came to this country very hard to do. But the mere fact that you did that instantly separates you from everybody else that was born here in the positive sense that you're on a mission to achieve something. So when mm. you see first-generation immigrants coming, working in a convenience store, doing a, a, a menial job, they don't identify that they are that job. That is a tool for them to achieve their dream. People mm. say the American dream is dead. Go to anywhere else in the world, and it's alive because everyone outside the world understands this dream and what it can be. So that's why one out of three Fortune 500 companies were founded by an immigrant or the child of a first-generation immigrant because they had a purpose to what they were doing. In the book I talk about, you, you walk by a construction site and there's three guys laying bricks. And you ask mm -hmm. them, what do you do? And the first guy says, I'm a bricklayer. And the second guy says, I'm making a building. And the third guy says, I'm making a house of God. He's building a church. The first guy has a job. The second guy has a career. And the third guy has a calling. Mm. You know, some people find their calling really early on. One of my dearest, oldest friends, uh, Martha uh, Masserling, Dr. Martha Masserling, she's a little kid. She's playing on the swings. Brother hits, swings the swing into her and knocks out all her front teeth. But a dentist gave her back her smile. At that moment, she knew the clouds opened up. The rays came down from God. She was going to spend her life as a dentist. And she What do you does. think your calling is? Giving the, the, the numbers of careers that you have, have, the options that you have. So I didn't I start off deep in introspective like you are. I was too, too, too busy clawing um, my way. Um, but my motivation very early on was I wanted to be a great father. I had two sons when I was very young, and I wanted them to live a better life. So many people think a better life is giving your kids something that you didn't have. When in fact, a better life is teaching the kid, your children things that you didn't learn. And so that, that drove me and that drove me. But that too, they're grown up. One has kids. They live out on their own. They have their own careers. I felt kind of lost, right? I didn't want to do the same old, same old and run another company and do all those things. And when I started realizing that I could give back, where I could pay it forward. I can't thank the people that helped me in my career. They're no longer here. But mm. I can certainly think of them and give to the next generation that which was entrusted with me. It's funny, when I was in, when I was in school, in elementary school, high school, whatever, they used to say, what's the difference between man and the animals? Mm. You know? And they used to say, man uses tools. And then they found a, you know, chimpanzees taking a stick to get ants and, and birds using pebbles. And it's not tools. What was different is we have a way to store information outside of our own minds, which means that we can build our lives on the shoulders of all those that came before us. You can spend time on the internet watching a cat play piano or, or you know, a hedgehog you know, eat carrots, or you can learn anything you want. You know, Dale Carnegie, one of the billionaires when there were only four of them in the world, 
He was an immigrant who didn't go to school, but he went to the public library and just read voraciously. And when he became so rich, he said to any city in the United States or in England, if you build the building of a library, I will fill it with books for you. And he built 1,600 libraries as a way of paying it forward. When I sold my first company, I said, wow, what can I give back? And we have a, a famous court case in the U.S. that went to Supreme Court called uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. Yeah. separate but equal for schools. So since schools are funded by property taxes, a poor neighborhood has bad schools with no books and no things, and a rich neighborhood has fancy ones. And uh, and in the deep south, rural segregated schools you know, had nothing. And it occurred to me that the internet would be the great equalizer. If I could get an internet connection, this is back in the 90s, early 90s, if I could get an internet connection into every classroom Everybody would have equal access to knowledge. And I started writing about this. And one day, little old me in my little office with, you know, little startup that nobody ever heard of, I get a call from the president of the United States. Now, I embarrass myself because there's no way it was Bill Clinton. There's no way President Bill Clinton's calling little old me. So I figured it was a friend doing a bad Arkansas accent, and I make the president of the United States prove to me that he's the president of the United States. Yes. Um, so Jay tell me how did you do that? Tell me. Um, how did you I do don't that? remember the exact questions, but I've done more <laughs> embarrassing things in my life because I'm stupid um, than than you could imagine. Um, and next thing you know, I'm at the White House, and he says, "You should do this. You should make sure every classroom has an internet connection." You know. You're going to be head of the National Education Technology Initiative. Go do this. I'm like, okay. By the way, we don't have one single dollar in federal funds. Figure out how to do it without any money. And so I figured little charities, you know, hold auctions to auction off stuff. I knew enough people in the corporate world that could donate stuff. Let's, let's do the first auction on the internet. Pierre wrote it. That became eBay. Um, and so many other people that were part of it, you know, went on to do great things. So the moral of that story is when you have that big idea, it's like a, a candle to, to moths. I mean, it will attract others around you. And that's how you build a company. And the impact you'll have on your employees, the impact you'll have on the community, that's where the joy comes from. Money is just a tool. It doesn't make you happy. Yeah, money is an amplifier. Uh, one of the things that we do say on this podcast a lot is, you know, if you're unhappy now, you're still going to be unhappy even with money. So money, fam, power, these are all amplifiers, catalysts, multipliers of who you really are. So, um, But if you're hurting right now, I'm not making light of that. Mm -hmm. Half of all jobs will disappear in the U.S. in the next five years. Raising the minimum wage, as noble as that sounds, actually increases the decisions in the boardroom to automate. In the 1980s, I went to McDonald's with this wacky idea. I looked at their cash register and their cash register was designed for illiterate employees. Little shake, medium shake, big shake. It was little pictures. I'm like, why can't I make you a touch screen and let the customer just do that and you'll save all that employees? And they're like, what are you talking about? You raise the minimum wage, you'll now see those touch screens at every McDonald's around the world. Um, mm. Anything that can be automated will. So if you lost your job, if you're hurting right now financially, that is not your destiny and it's not your fault. 
140 million people in the U.S. own 1% of the assets in the U.S. Let that sink in for a second. Most people do not have $1,000 to their name for an emergency. Most mm. retirees in this country don't have $10,000 to retire on. So it's not your fault that you're broke. You went through an educational system that was designed to make you a farm worker or a factory worker, not to think for yourself. Um, the IQ test was invented by the military so they know who was worth training and who was cannon fodder that you could just let die. So nobody was looking out for you. I mean, there's a great meme that I love. I'm so thankful I learned trigonometry. It's so helpful during trigonometry season, right? People don't learn about taxes or anything practical. Um, so I'm here to tell you that you don't have to sit there looking that you were left out or left behind and that you have to scrounge for leftovers. That was you yesterday. There's nothing stopping you from changing that tomorrow. And so Vin's story and future-proofing you, hopefully is that light to attract people to. You know well enough that nobody writes a book for money. Nothing could be more time-consuming with less payback. And you painful. write a book. And painful. Yeah, well, I enjoy the writing process. Oh, no kidding. It's, okay, cool. All right. It's, it's the... Uh, 100 of these podcasts that I'll be doing between now and launch that is like uh, a, a lot of time. But when I get those emails, and there's, there's, there's one that I asked the woman permission, could I share that's in the book? A woman, early 50s, put all her money into a startup of hers. She was going to rent places and Airbnb and make money and then went belly up. And so she decided to kill herself. And she called to say goodbye to her daughter who was in her 20s. And, her, and she was expecting her daughter maybe to talk her out of it or call the police or something. And her daughter's first reaction was to laugh. She was, you're killing yourself over money? That's the stupidest thing. And her daughter gave her mom my book. And the woman was writing me to say that, and I can't take credit for this, that in her mind, it saved her life. It turned her thinking around. It got her to go again. She started again, and now she's successful. Because when you fail, you don't end up back where you started. You either earn or you learn, but either way you grow. And life's about growing. You're either growing or you're dying. You know, I'm not Eminem, I can't come up with a rap for it, but you know. So I have a question for you because you actually you also mentioned this in a book as well. You have missed a uh, video game opportunity where you could have exited, sold to uh, Blizzard, right, for a billion dollars. So, oh, billions. so, so said, billions, excuse me, <laughs> billions, right? So it was. It said, I think the quote was, "It still is still stung a little whenever you think about it." I have friends who beat themselves up for missing investment opportunities or make investment mistakes. So if you would make it a little bit personal, right? How do you control your mind so you don't go, oh, if only I invested in Uber, Airbnb, these type of investment opportunities, I'm sure you have many oh, chances to I've, do that. <laughs> um, it was probably six years ago when Brock Pierce said, let's get together for coffee and explained to me, Bitcoin when it was sub $10. Now I got into Bitcoin, I did well with Bitcoin, but I didn't listen to him then. Um, we all have a thousand of those, everybody does. Um, 
in that first time, I had a company that was really was on fire. And what I didn't understand then is you're the center of the universe for a moment. And so often with a startup, the second it gets noticed, your best offer of all time may come in in that very first day. I had two students that got a $100 million buyout offer in their first 30 days. And I'm like, take the money. And they're like, no, well, they're offering us this. They'll offer us a billion dollars next year, you know. Um, and I will be accused and go to my grave as the guy who always sells out too early. Because I'd rather say, hey, it worked. I made money. Go on. Pigs get fat. Hogs get slaughtered. So does it sting? Yes. Does it hurt when you're, when you're struggling and trying to get your next business off the ground or whatever? And you think, had I only, of course, you could drive yourself insane. But right. here's the other flip side of that. You're wasting cycles on something that you cannot change. Mm. How, but how did it inform me in making my next decision? I was, I was uh, at a company that I left and I had a bunch of stock and they offered to buy out all the stock and write me a check. And I'm like, okay, thinking back to that example. So that stock in the future could go up and be worth a ton of money or it could go to zero. Do I take the money now and go, yay, they went out of business. I was smart. But if I take the money and it becomes another billion dollar company, because I've done that enough times, will I have another one of these regrets that drives me crazy? So what do you think I did? Took the money? Nope. I took half. Ah. I, said, I said, if I take half, it's a win. I've made money. My time was well invested. I proved my point. I, I built a successful business. But just in case, I took schmuck insurance. I said, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's like playing in Vegas. If you constantly bet at all your winnings, you're going to lose. If you take half the money off the table and you lose what's on the table, you're still left a winner. Sure okay. enough. That company ended up going beyond anything I could have imagined. It, it astounded me. And uh, so one day you're just minding your own business and a check comes in the mail. I, you mm -hmm. know, one of the largest checks of my life. And I'm just I'm like, I guess I'm going to read this packet. What is this? I mean, it's, you know, uh, I had another friend who started a, a, a company called, um, God, I can't think of the name of it anymore. Uh, it was a uh, current TV. And mm. they, it, it didn't go anywhere financially. It was well-connected. Uh, Al Gore, everybody's involved. Al Gore, yeah. And they fired him, and, and, and he was all bummed, and he didn't know what to do with his life. I mean, he was just beating himself up. And to make a long story short, to get current TV was on so many cable channels. To get on all those cable channels in one fell swoop, it was worth it for Al Jazeera to buy this thing for hundreds mm. of millions or a billion dollars, right? Now, mm. the company's doing nothing. It's losing money. You're no longer there. You got fired. And one day you get a check for $30 million. Wow. Not bad. Yeah. How do you, because um, as I shared in the very beginning of our conversation, Noble Warriors is, I have audience who are warriors early in their stage, you know, it's about proving themselves. We have commanders who are team leaders, and then we have kings, and then we have elders, right? So for the people who is a little bit later in their stage who are kings and, and elders, how do what would you say? Because in my mind, I consider you an elder. You've you've been there, now you want to essentially give it away as a as a as a as a as your wisdom, right? How would you advise the the kings and the elders to 
say put themselves in positions such that they can get checks like that in the mail. Oh, um, if you've made it to that stage in life, you not only have knowledge at that point, you have access. You know, all the idiots that you started your career with that were equal and had nothing. Fast forward 30 years later, that's the generation that's running the world. So you can speed the path into, you know, the C-suite of different things. You can have access to people that somebody with a great idea out of school doesn't. So um, I recently, you know, stepped down as, as vice chairman of Deloitte, which does, you know, $40 billion a year in, in consulting. Many companies have offered me money to consult, and invariably, I always turn it down. If I like the company and I believe I can add value, I said, listen, if I can take your little company and make it worth a lot, how about we talk about equity? Now, if I can accelerate the value of the company and the speed to success, then my payday comes you know, five, seven years down the, down the road, and it can be substantial if I'm able to get them to go. And if I'm not able to add value, it didn't cost them anything. Yeah. Do you mind going into a little bit more details? I mean, maybe not specific names, but kind of like the, the way you think about it. How do you select them? Deal structure? So that so, way people, people uh, can get into it. Mm -hmm. I have a chapter on deal structure. So people don't get rich from working hard. They get rich from deal structure. And it's not taught. And they think attorneys know deal structure. No, they know how to paper a deal that you already thought out. Accountants know how the taxes have to work. Deal structure is a whole art in itself. But I'll tell you the first thing, and this will this probably surprise you. I never talked about this in somebody else's thing. When I get offered an opportunity, I always ask one question. I usually say it inside. Why me? Of all the people in the world, why me? Right? There's people with more money. There's people with more connections. More. How am I so lucky? Right? And invariably, the real opportunities are the ones where I'm not the first call. You know, a whole bunch of people turned them down for whatever reason. And then the second question is, what expertise, what skill set, what connections, what abilities do I have? More than money, you can get money from anybody that can accelerate the success of this company. And if I feel I have that, then I say yes. Um, the, the, the best example was a, a company that came to my team and, and came to me and uh, they had 30,000 in revenue. They weren't going anywhere. They couldn't get traction. And I knew exactly the path. I mean, exactly. And the way I could say this is because 90 days later, I took them public for $440 million. It was the height of a bubble. Everything was overvalued. I understood the game that was going on. I was finally at the right place in my life that I could take advantage of you know, the ebb and flow of the stock market in a way that helped this company. But, you know, to do that, they give up 50% ownership of that company. Now, put it on your side. If you have a company that's done 30,000 in sales and is going to go out of business and has no capital, would you rather have half of the Pacific Ocean or all the puddle? And I mean, uh, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of people don't think that way. You know, a lot of people don't think that way. And what you want to do, and I taught this to Vin in Future Proofing You, is if he had a client where they were paying him to, to market something, and he realized that he could 
just do a phenomenal job and make them tons of money. Rather than charge the client so much a month, why not come up with a way to monetize it better? If I hit this number, I get a bonus. If I hit 2x that, I get a crazy bonus. Anybody will sign a contract with a crazy bonus because by definition, they don't believe it's going to happen. It's so crazy. I was at a public company that was going out of business. It had been around 100 years, having a rough year. The CFO was desperate for revenues. And so I had a conversation. I said, if we double our revenues, if we do twice what we're supposed to in the plan, will you double the salary of everybody in my division? And it's like, yeah, sure. I mean, we need the revenue. Absolutely. That's an insane thing. So for the rest of that year, the CFO's name was Tony. I had a picture of Tony on the wall with one of those charity thermometers where you fill in the red stuff, you know, like you're raising for, for fun. And my weekly staff meeting was, how do we make Tony smile? That was all mm. we focused on for a year. And guess what? Every single person got to take home twice the money that they thought they were going to. And everybody else in the rest of the company hated our guts. You know, one of the most unique ways is that I see from my point of view is whenever I read your book, Disrupt You and Future Proofing You, is your unique way of linking different ideas and also align the incentives along the way. It's very concrete, like, hey, how do we, these people are in trouble, how do we bring our product such that they're no longer in trouble and then we can also you know, serve our clients and make money at the same time. Like, how do you hone that skill of being able to see the map and align everyone together? Does that make sense? What am I saying? Yes. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't realize for most of my life that everybody didn't think the way I did. No, definitely um, not. <laughs> what I realized is I can teach you how to think that way. Okay. Okay, I'm please. Dyslexic. I'm, I'm, I'm all year. Dys I'm dyslexic, so reading linearly, thinking linearly. I'm just not wired that way. And all of us can rewire our brain, by the way. It's how we use it is how it gets wired. It's no different than working out in a gym. Um, so where I start from is what audience, what target audience am I trying to reach with this product, with this service, with this business? Who am I trying to reach? Are we trying to reach senior citizens? Are we trying to reach young moms, you know, high school kids? What's, what's at, at, you know, they call it the customer journey. Define that customer as best you can. And then before you spend a dime, figure out how to get OPM, other people's money. It's my favorite money. You don't have to pay it back. You don't have to give up equity. You don't have to go into debt. It's free money. People will give you millions of dollars that they don't want, want back. And here's how it works. Big, giant companies have lots of overhead, lots of people, lots of people doing little things, and very few people with big ideas doing anything new and novel. So if you're going after a specific audience, most likely there's a big company that wants to go after that same audience, not to compete with you, but to sell something else. So if you if if uh, you've got you know special you know magic hearing aids or something for seniors, somebody else might have insure or depends or whatever else senior life insurance. Okay, and if you can get that company to say, hey, you can give people our piece of technology as a customer acquisition tool or whatever the, the program is, suddenly they'll spend all their money getting you customers. So in Disrupt You, I talk about um, McDonald's had their worst year ever. Sales were down 8% because of a movie called Supersize Me, where Spurlock just ate McDonald's every day and he got fat and sick and, right. and, and nearly died. 
And they didn't know their, their, their quiver of tools is, you know, bring back the McRib or, you know, uh, you know, make a bigger size shake. They didn't have a tool to get hip and cool again. So I went to them with the idea. Digital music was popular at that time. It was the height of, of the, of the iPod just coming out. Buy a big Mac, get a free track. Simple as that. Mm. Put a little scratch code on the side of the Big Mac. You spend millions of dollars on commercials, uh, you know, 20 plus million advertising. And the only way those people can get that track is to come to my digital music store that I had at the time. So I knew the people I wanted to get. So I tried to figure out where could I find somebody that I could leverage their spend to launch my business. I had 20 million paying customers my first week. I didn't spend wow. a penny. Wow. So it's all who else can you solve for? And by the way, you're making that executive look like a genius. Mm. You know, they've got a new plan. I mean, and you can do this again and again and again. So, so I mean, that, that chutzpah to go after the executive, you know, the big brands like McDonald's, because you didn't say, let me start with this small brands you know, just let's go to the top mcdonald's <laughs> like what did you find that hootspot to just you know mcdonald's starbucks fortune 100 doesn't matter let me let me go after them when i had my little startup we hadn't made a hundred thousand in sales yet i mean we were nothing i was making video games back in the era when video games sounded like this beep, boop, 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 beep, boop. and it dawned on me that now that computers had had more memory that Computer games could have real music, rock and roll soundtracks. I mean, they don't take up that much side. Everybody now has speakers on their PCs and laptops. And why not just make it? I made this really cool game, my team, that would kill with rock and roll. And I didn't know anybody in the music industry. This before I entered the music industry. That's what got me noticed by the music industry. So wrote to Bill Gates. Bill Gates, this will sell an awful lot of computers. People would like to play games that have this. Would you do me a favor? I've never met the man. I'm nobody. Would you introduce me to David Geffen, the only billionaire in the music industry, so that I can have music in a video game? And Gates did. Now, you called chutzpah, good choice of words. Um, what would happen if I didn't? Nothing. I don't, I don't lose a pint of blood. I, I mean, I don't die. You try, it didn't happen. So I've tried thousands of things that don't work. But the one that does just sounds amazing. It's not like every, every CEO I've reached out to or every CFO, you're instantly there. I will give you my secret tip that I've given startups for, for years that people don't understand. Why do you hire a PR firm? So for most people, they think it's to get publicity. Now, mm -hmm. you can pretty much reach everybody on your own nowadays. The reason to hire a PR firm is if you're trying to do that OPM thing, if you're trying to say, I got the greatest idea for the, for the CMO of McDonald's, how would I ever get to that person? They're not going to read your email. They're, they're not going to let you walk into their office. They're not going to give you five minutes of your life. Hire the same PR firm that they do. Then when you're launching this thing, somebody there will go, oh, this would be great for one of our clients. Do you mind if we share it 
with them. And you go, what a great idea. You're so smart, PR agency. Sure. <laughs> I would say in the first 10 years that I had my, my first startup company, I switched PR firms at least 10 times. Every time mm. I had a new idea of somebody I wanted to partner with. And I partnered with big, giant companies when we're five, six, seven, 10, 20 people. And it works because they don't want to lose their big client. They need those new ideas. And if it's an idea that really helps the company. I, 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 I just, I mean, this is to me is like a superpower because I'm a trained as, a, as an academic engineer. So my mind is linear. It doesn't connect dots laterally. It's a trained muscle, which is, you know, you've, you, you're like black belt, you know, 10 down. It's a, diff like it's a different skill set. <laughs> um, engineers don't tend to make good CEOs for exactly that reason. You live in a perfect world that is one or zero. There is no gray. 99% of the decisions you'll have to make in business are imperfect data to make a permanent decision. So, so with that in mind, totally get it. It's an art, right? How do you, how do you, with imperfect information, make the best decision possible? How do you train? What kind of dojo environment, skill uh, level, so we can level first, up, be better? First, first of all, and one of the truths that I talk about is fear and how to deal with fear in future proofing you. Do you believe that you have more brains than? a rock or a toad or a wall. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So would you rather leave the big decision up to nature or you? You okay. want to want to make decision. Right. So, so any decision is better than random. Okay. So there's, there's the, the big mistake is not making quick decisions. Mm. Many of them will be wrong. So what? That is always better than random. And once you get out of that mindset that it has to be the right decision, there is no right decision. You're predicting the future. You're doing something about the future. You don't have control of the future. But you can always course correct. Mm. And, and that's what it comes down to. In the beginning, you're making a lot of decisions where you're literally betting the farm. You're betting the whole company. But you have to be willing to do that or it's not going to go. I see. So the, under, so the underlying theme of your is focus on taking lots and lots of actions. If you, I think in the book, you quote, if, if I want a million dollars, I want to make $10 million offers or something like that. If I'm kind of paraphrasing what you said. So similarly, if you want to get better at you know, making deals or connecting deals, make lots and lots of deals, and then just yeah. take lots of actions. That's how you get better. Is that, is that essentially? Yeah. You respond I, to that? I, I've taken stakes in probably a hundred companies, might be more. Most weren't worth my time. They turned out to be worth zero at the end of the day. So do I go, wow, most of my decisions were wrong. I really suck. Why did I waste my time with those companies? Or do I say, wow, I picked a half a dozen that billions of people use every day mm. that they can't live without, that have made mm. me you know, wealthy. 
Mm. No one's always right. Um, I'd say the best prognosticator at seeing the future that I've ever met is Reed Hoffman. The man is unbelievable. And Reed did one say to me, he says, uh, we're investing in this new thing. Uh, it's called Airbnb. People can stay at your house and you can stay at their house. And I'm like, nobody's staying in my house and I'm not sleeping at somebody's house. It wasn't about me. <laughs> he, was in, he was the first hundred grand into that and the first hundred grand mm. into Facebook and, and so on and so on. And uh, he has an amazing analytical mind. The way I predict the future, I cheat. How so? I hang, How I, I hang out with all the people that are coding it. So I know, yeah, I know the people that are creating the new products for Facebook and the new products for Microsoft, the new products for Apple and the new products um, for Google. And those companies are also my clients. So I know where people are spending billions of dollars. So do you want to have some completely unique idea, your anti-gravity boots, okay? Or do you want to get a piece of where somebody's spending $10 billion right now? And so in mm. Future Proofing You, I have a whole chapter on what I say is the next trillion dollar market that no one has 1% market share. And it is such a big opportunity that if Apple doesn't get it right, Apple goes out of business. If Facebook doesn't get it right, they go out of business. If Google doesn't get it right, they go out of business. So these guys are spending big bucks. And when the 800 pound gorillas are spending big bucks, it's like you know Super Bowl weekend at a strip club. They're just peeling off money because their life depends on it, okay? <laughs> I like so, that analogy. It's very vivid. Thank you. So I'm happy to be that stripper. Um, <laughs> so I look at where they're focused. And I learned this lesson in my 20s. There was a technology. Now I'm really going to sound like old guy. You all know what CDs are. Well, before the CD was this big, it was 12 inches. It was a thing called a laser disc. It's the first video yep. that didn't wear out and stayed good image and better than videotape and all that stuff. I thought it was the most amazing thing. I worked on the very first one. I'm like, oh my God, I got in the ground floor. My whole life's going to be laser disc. I'm going to make millions and retire as Mr. Laser Disc. Um, it didn't catch on. Nobody wanted it because it didn't record. A VCR recorded. It died. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, these big giant companies, that didn't know how big companies work, spent millions or billions of dollars on all this technology to make this stuff, and they're just walking away? That makes no sense to me. So I said, what's something else that I could do with this thing? And I'm sitting there, and again, we're going back to the 80s, and there's this new thing called MTV. If you have cable, you get MTV, and you're watching music videos, and it's the center of all culture. But most people didn't have cable. So I said, wait a second, what if I take these laser disc players and put them in a jukebox that plays music videos instead of whatever coin up, put your 50 cents in, play We're the World. That's a great use for them. I can get them real cheap. Nobody else wants them. Suddenly, I have coin up use. And then I did corporate training, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't have to invent technology to make money from technology. There's tons of great inventions, tons of free patents that you have access to that are out there because nobody figured out how to take that genius technology and solve a problem with it. It all comes yeah, down to book, solving a problem. In your book, you had mentioned, is very similar to Peter Thiel, where he says, basically, I avoid competition. You said, to avoid competition, I always focus on the next new thing. Absolutely. 
Can you say a little bit about that, and also what's the next new thing in addition to the spatial reality thing you talk about? What What are the next new things that you pay attention to? Oh, there's a whole bunch, but on on that one, I got great advice really early on to either be the best at what you do or the only one doing it. Because if you're the only one doing it, then you're the best. So, you know, where did social media experts come from? Where did uh, virtual reality experts come from? Where did all these people? They didn't go to school and get a degree. They all of a sudden put their hand up one day and say, I'm an expert. And they continue to learn and, and, and stay ahead of it. But there's always new things. When you go to the Consumer Electronics Show, you see, you know, one year it's all about drones, right? So you don't have to invent the drone. Companies did the hard part. What are you going to do with this drone? Well, it turns out I, I judged a, a um, startup competition for the Wall Street Journal. And the winner was somebody that just took a drone and flew it on oil pipelines looking for leaks. They didn't invent the drone. They just do it. But it saved the oil companies millions of dollars and became very successful. So there are tons of ways that you can solve a problem with a new technology. So look at what are the problems. And I have in the book, the uh, three problems a day for 30 day technique to, to find your deal flow. And then go through the buzzwords of the day. What can blockchain do with this? What can wearables do with this? What can 3D printing do with this? You know, is there something that somebody invented that can solve something? Um, oh. I want to underline what you just said. So not only you're exercising your problem identification muscle by the three problems per day for 90 for 30 days, right? So that's, there's that. And also you um, said to imagine, um, you know, you know, basically future pacing. Like if this is an inevitable future, what kind of things could I create? Oh, and also you said to look at what new other periphery, the, the derivatives yeah. that this could so, also create as well and stimulate. So, so let's wanna, talk I'm about gonna... augmented. Go ahead. Let's let's walk through augmented reality. Sure. People don't believe that they're going to buy glasses. Okay. So let me get over that first one. We had 80 million pairs of glasses that sold last year in the US for more than $150 a pair that came with one app, Focus. Okay. <laughs> yes. Another 50 million sold that came with another app called Sun. Okay. Yes. So you'll wear glasses if the app's good enough, right? Mm. Go to the beach, you need sunglasses. Want to read a book? You need reading glasses. Now, we will now have glasses that talk to us and have overlays. So instead of five hours a day or 27 days a year staring at a phone, we'll have heads up displays. You don't remember where you parked your car? Where's my car? And you'll see a line, okay? There, there's a, a zoo that does this with uh, tablets today, but it works with glasses in Tokyo, where you want to get to the zoo from the train station, you follow penguins bouncing down the sidewalk. It's, it's adorable. Mm. What are the other use cases that you can do by either adding or subtracting data? Because now with 5G and edge computing, you know where I am, what my intent is, and what's in my environment. So the sales and marketing cycle comes down to the immediacy of the moment. So you're standing in a supermarket. There's 40,000 SKUs on the shelves. The doctor says you're diabetic. You're going to pick up each box? No, you just stand there and say, 
please show me all the products that have no sugar. Or please show me the things that are on keto or that are halal or kosher or vegan. And every other product disappears. This isn't science fiction. I know a startup just doing that one application. Mm. Um, the number one reason furniture's return to Ikea, the largest seller of furniture, isn't their fault. It's because it doesn't fit. It was too big. People yep. are spatially challenged. Yes. You know, how many people with an eight-foot ceiling buy a 12-foot uh, Christmas tree? I don't know, but there's a lot of them. Yes. Um, so now you can put the QR code on the ground, hold your tablet, and see that sofa at scale in your room. Soon you'll be able to do all these things just with your glasses automatically. So you don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to know any technology. What problem can you solve? Ten years ago, when the iPhone came out, how much did Apple pay to invent the iPhone and the Android system? We can't live without these things, correct? Yes. But we can't live without them because of the apps that people created. So the hard part's being done. One of, my, one of the companies I work with has contact lenses that do this. I kid you not. When people wow. ask me tech, technically, how does that work? Since I'm not an engineer, I give the honest answer, witchcraft. I mean, I do not know. It is unbelievable, okay? But wow. what can you now do? So you think of your job and you think of your problems. You're a firefighter and you have to go in a building in a smoke field and you can't see. Well, now you can have heads-up display to make a wireframe off of the building plans of where all the walls, stairs, and everything are. That's a lifesaver. Right? You want to do construction. Where is that gas line on this property? Now I can see through the ground like Superman and see where the pipes are and the sewers and this or that so I don't dig and cut a cable. Endless versions of this, on and on and on. And so what you want to do is the big guys aren't thinking this way. They have to sell this. Right. So solve that problem for that industry and and you win. Pick a big enough problem, you win giant. And, and by the way, when you think about problems to solve for you, Jay, personally, I will, and we'll get to the, 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 the big ideas that you have around reviving the middle class um, for entrepreneurs, but we'll you know, put a pin on that for a moment. When you think about a problem to solve, because you can solve app-based problems, you can solve platform problems, you can solve you know national problems, you can solve global problems. What goes through your mind? Or you don't even care about these type of stuff. You just constantly coming up with ideas. You don't even think no. about so, to them. So in, in the book, I really tell you to think of three problems a day. You end up with 90 problems at the end of a month. But then comes the important part, which is to sort them along two axes. One is TAM, total addressable market. When I teach to, at, at university kids to start a business, invariably they come up with the, delivering food to the dorms. Okay, Same effort to start that as OpenTable or Uber, but your whole market is the thousand kids that live in dorms. Kind of lame. So you want something that affects a lot of people. <laughs> On the other hand, it could affect a lot of people and you really don't care. I'll give you the favorite one that ever walked into my office. A guy was manufacturing bullets for the US military. So he had to have a huge, a huge assembly line that all paid for by the government and their orders and everything. So in the hours when it's not working, he could put more stuff through that machinery 
and it literally costs him next to nothing. So he can flood the market with the cheapest bullets ever made. He can be the biggest seller of bullets. How would I like to be a piece of that business? Business-wise, was his thinking sound? Absolutely. Do I want to help the world put more bullets in the streets? No. I was like, how do I keep a straight face and get this guy out of my office without getting shot? I mean, mm. nothing could be further. So the, the, the point of it is, the problem that you're going to want to solve, you have to be passionate about. Tom Bill Yu had a software company. They were doing okay. They, they weren't into it. But he had obese relatives that he cared about that were dying. And he looked at protein bars were basically filled with corn syrup because it was the only way that they could go through the extruder at the pick and pack place. And he goes, people think they're eating healthy and they're basically having candy bars and getting sicker. So he started with, with uh, some friends, Quest and the Quest Bar, which was the first healthy health bar. From a business standpoint, how stupid. There were 1,600 bars already in the market. You're going to go up against that? From a passion standpoint, there were no healthy bars in the health food business. Sells the business for just under a billion dollars. So yeah. you want to pick something that you're passionate about. So I'm not trying to solve the business side of problems right now. The thing that drives me at this stage is I love living in democracy. I've traveled the world. I, I understand the difference of on on everyday people. Can you pause uh, on that just for a moment? Sure. Pause, pause on that. I want to recap what you said because that's in the super okay. important thing. Then then we can go into the, that big idea because I think that's super okay. important. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about soul impact fit. So soul is in what fulfills me, what what am I passionate about? So inside our approach, impact would be the impact on others, more of a an outside in approach. If I'm hearing you right, correct me if I'm projecting myself here, is start from the soul. Like, what am I passionate about? What am I curious about? What do I actually fulfills me? And then you can get into total addressable market, da 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 da. Is that an accurate reflection of what you said? It, it's it's two at the same time. So same a lot time. of people okay. a lot of people say follow your passion. That's mm. not necessarily true. Because your passion may be something that should be your avocation, not your vocation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love painting. Never thought to do it professionally. Weirdly, this year when I couldn't leave the house and I started showing my paintings, suddenly I became a painter, but I didn't set out that way. Um, so it's really, you start with a problem that you can solve, a problem that's big enough that if you get a piece of that market, it's worth the effort. Because it's going to be hard, it's going to take longer than you than you think, and and you've got to be committed. But if if you don't believe in what you're trying to do, if there's no purpose to it, so uh, a friend of mine started a company uh, out of you know just online selling uh, window blinds, right? Uh, doesn't sound like much of a purpose. It sounds like okay, I'm making it easier. You, you get the measurements, da da. But it turns out a lot of kids choke and die on those those blind pulleys, you know, oh, the, the string at the side. So why not sell blinds that don't have that? Why not educate the world about that? Why not save kids' lives? Now you have a mission. Now you yeah. have a purpose. And, and so there's a way to line it. Tom's shoes, right? It's another mm -hmm. shoe company selling shoes. But when you buy a pair, somebody that doesn't have shoes gets a pair. 
or I'll give you one of my favorite ones. You can 3D print anything nowadays. It's replacing mm. 300 million uh, factory jobs are going away because of 3D printing. You can print metal, you can print body parts, you can print organs, you can print everything. So imagine, God forbid, your child's born and is missing a limb or fingers. Think of that child's life. They don't get a prosthetic until they're teens or older because they're so expensive and they grow so fast. Mm-hmm. So this kid's not going to get picked to be on the softball team and not played with at recess. And, and their whole personality is going to shrink and shrivel because of mm-hmm. their self-esteem, because of something mm-hmm. like this. Well, for about $15, you can 3D print a working prosthetic. Okay. That's cool. Guys are doing it. Helping people makes sense. But when you look at it as a business, as as a passion, as an impact, you know, you have something here that's important. So why not go to Disney and get a license? Mm. So now you can make a frozen hand. You can make an Iron Man hand for that twisted kid. You can make a Darth Vader hand now that they have Star Wars. Now, oh. I want Darth Vader on my team. Oh, I want Frozen to come over. I mean, you change the trajectory of people's lives. You didn't invent 3D printing. You didn't even invent the idea of making prosthetics with them. But you took that to the next level. That's the joy in creating. You don't get to live forever, but the things that you create can have an impact to last forever. Was was there a turning point in your entrepreneurial career to think about it that way? Because one may assume, right, in the very beginning, it's utilitarian, it's arbit- value arbitrage, then it moved into more meaningful. But I'm curious if you had any kind of transition. I was raised with the belief system that we're here to repair the earth. Okay, we're we're here hmm. to make the world better. And so each in our own way should do our part to do that. Whether, and it doesn't mean environmentally, it could be in any way. But if the world isn't better for you being here, why were you here? And so when I started my first company at 21, here's the basic of every 20-somethings first company. There's more hours in the day than there are people paying. You have excess capacity. So each year I would sit down, everybody in the company and said, okay, with our excess capacity this year, what's something we can do? So the first big project, one of the first things we did was we made software for non-communicative children to be able to communicate on a special tablet with their parents. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, this or that. Life-changing for the parent and the child. We had the graphic artists, we had the coders, we had the ability, donate the whole thing. Uh, Steven Spielberg's Starlight uh, Foundation came and they wanted to research, would kids in hospitals that could play video games need less medication and get out quicker than kids that are sitting there just lying there thinking about their pain? Mm. Like, really, you need to study this? No problem. We'll make games for them that fit that that thing and like to study. And so Mm. it was so rewarding and designed things for museums. Because here's the two ways it's rewarding, and it may not be obvious. On the one hand, you're doing good. That's great. But here's the other side. Pretend you're a graphic artist. Graphic artist is the most frustrating job I've ever seen. Because they don't get to do what they want to do and what they think artistically is right. Because there's a client that says, no, I want it purple. I don't know, it shouldn't be. I want it this way. I want it that way. I want it. 
like their whole life is yes, right? You know, I'll, I I won't get to show my artistic skills. I will bastardize myself for the sake of the team. But on I think you just recreated project, the, the frustration of a graphic artist who whoever yeah. is listening. Yes, I feel your pain. For <laughs> but for a charity project, there is no client. Mm. You get to do your best work, your best artwork, your best whatever. There's also no you know, cut down the time, you know, we got deadlines and six other people. And people went above and beyond on all these projects. I mean, because there was pride, there was a sense of ownership. And, and this was, this was their, their way of paying it forward and helping others. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, one other thing I think is super important I want to mention about problem identification is a hack. I really love it in the book. I want to mention that before we move to the, the bigger issue that you're solving, okay. if that's okay. So one thing you said to Vin, he's, you said to pair the problem with the buzzword of the day. So at that yeah. time, it was uh, all about cryptocurrency. So you invited him to consider the possibility of cryptocurrency plus growth hacking. Is there anything you want to say about pairing the problem uh, with the buzzword of the day? Anything you want to say there? So the, the definition of a buzzword from my standpoint is things that VCs are funding, things that people are starting, things that, that the tech press is talking about, things that are investable. People are excited, right? You came up with a new way to make wax to seal letters right now that was better than the wax that they used in 1834. No one cares, okay? But right now, if you have a new way to use blockchain or you have a new way to, to add a functionality to a Fitbit or whatever it might be, right? Um, so you'll notice that when Uber take, took off, there was a whole year of the Uber of this, the Uber of dog walking, the Uber of, you know, and that's what that is. So, you know, go to where there's a market, Go to where there's capital and put yourself in between the market and the capital. It's really that easy. Well, I mean, where, where do you pay attention to? Do you pay attention to certain personalities, certain uh, platform, angel list? You know, like, how do you know? What do you watch if, if that's... At, at the you know. beginning of my career was how many conferences can I go out there? How many people can I meet? You start identifying who are the people that are always right, or it always just seems that way. Like, here's the new thing. Oh, there he is again. Um, uh, and so it was really building that human network of things. Uh, uh, I love social media from the standpoint that my social media feed isn't, uh, you know, some conspiracy theory garbage. It's somebody that finds the most fascinating article in the most obscure publication to basically go, See, I'm more intellectually tuned in than you are. I mean, there, there's a, a, a pride among my, my peer group of, of the stuff that they read and the stuff that they think and the stuff that they do. And, um, you know, you go down the rabbit holes on topics that you never knew about that are just absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, mm. uh, there's, uh, this morning I was reading the economic theory of countries with McDonald's don't have war and why that mm. isn't a correlation, but actually a causation. Um, just crazy, crazy things. But um, yeah, you know, the part that doesn't come easy is 
you can put yourself in the spot to have the opportunity. You can put yourself in the spot to have the funding. You can put yourself in, in, in the framework to actually have the right solution. But execution's everything. Mm. And that's not hard. That's not innate. That is learned and measure. Mm. You know, if you can measure something, you can improve it. And that's, you know, that formula works for any business, any service that you can think of. Do you have a specific cadence in terms of, hey, so let's bring back Vin again, right? Um, I think you said at some point he was challenged because of the Facebook and Google slap. You want to yeah, yeah. So, so, so Vin, Vin's idea when he came to me is he wanted to, he, he thought he could do social media marketing, just like about 12 million other people. And his problem was everybody that he went to to do marketing in his peer group didn't have any money. And he didn't know how to get to the, the Cokes and McDonald's and, 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 you know, and Sylvester Stallone's and et cetera. So there was a misalignment. So the first thing was, okay, if you think you're good at this, if you really think you are this growth hacker and you understand how to do these things, one, who's somebody that really needs it right now? You know, what's the zeitgeist? Where, where is business and industry focused? And who are the companies that desperately need what you have that no one has said, I'm the expert to do it for your industry? And when I say it like that, it sounds kind of obvious. I mean, there's nothing in future-proofing you or disrupt you that you go, oh my God, that's the Pythagorean theorem. I mean, that is just, you know, that is quantum physics, dude. You are so smart. No, it's just common sense. Explain well, common way. sense is common these days. So I love yeah. that you're so insightful you know, about it. So I just try to share what to me is a logical way to look at things. So therefore it is teachable. And so it took, it, this was the year when I was mentoring Vin that Bitcoin went from $1,000 to $20,000. So every day, everything was Bitcoin, 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 Bitcoin. And at the same time, everybody that didn't get in on the Bitcoin bandwagon wanted to launch an alternative coin. So alt currencies. And they, those get launched with what's called an ICO, an initial coin offering. And the first people that did it we're like pocketing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars for what appeared to be a day's labor. So suddenly there's 3000 coins that want to get in before this window of opportunity disappears. There are 3000 people that really, 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 really are highly motivated to hire the world's best agency at marketing initial coin offerings. And it turns out, that VINs was the only agency that marketed itself as the world's best agency for ICOs. Mm. So once, once he got his first client, and you can always get your first client because you can charge less than anybody else would or even do it for free. Once his first client made, I think it was, it's in the book, I think it was $58 million you know, in one week. Now he was not just saying he was the world's best, he has a case study that he's the world's best. Now it's how organized and how skilled and how can he clone himself and how do you scale the business and how do you hire people and how do you work with consultants and all that stuff that we talk about in the book to get as many clients as fast as possible. 
So he was humming along thinking he'll be doing this till he's my age. He's got the perfect business. It's all, you know, he owns the universe. He was so, I mean, he worked so hard and he made it happen. And, you know, to go from zero to $70,000 in your first month in business, you know, and, and that be your worst month in business is, you know, inspiring if you've never, you know, had access to any type of money. And then all of a sudden, because there were a lot of scammers in the space, Facebook and Google didn't know what to do. So they banned any mention of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, anything. I'm on the board of a, of, a, of, a, of a company that's in that field. That company couldn't even do anything. I mean, everybody was just, so now all of a sudden, Vince sitting there like, he can't do what he said he would do. Mm. He can't use Google AdSense. He can't, he can't buy ads on, on Facebook. How am I going to do my marketing? But at the beginning of our journey, I said, you never want to have just one revenue stream. So he was working on another revenue stream and he was able to use the tools of that revenue stream for his existing clients and to, the, to his clients, not miss a beat. And now suddenly he's not only the best at doing it, he's again, the only guy out there because everybody else was relying on those easy tools of Facebook and Google. So uh, amazingly proud. I, I can't emphasize, you know, I was worried he would tap out because I was basically pushing him uh, hard uh, because the goal was a huge goal. But I also see all those movies with the Navy SEAL training, you know, where they take you just, you know, this will kill you. So we'll just take you down, you know, one degree less than that. He didn't date for a year. He didn't go out partying. He didn't go to a club. He didn't buy a, a piece of clothing. He didn't waste his precious time. So quick question, interjection there as a coach, as a, as a sergeant. You know, that's since you brought up the whole Navy SEAL idea as a trainer, it must be a moment the way he almost cracked. And could you describe that? And, and how did you navigate and motivate and coach and mentor someone who almost cracked, but, but, but you still believe in them and saw the potential in them? I didn't think I had to because once he saw what he could do, no matter what obstacles came up later, he knew that he could overcome. Um, so I was there at that point to just really, you know, where are we on, on hitting this goal? I mean, he slept with a big board next to his desk, you know, one year to a million dollars and, and, and tracked his progress and everything they could do. And I know one month he was really, we would, we would have our, our talks on Friday at the end of the week. And he was really disappointed that, you know, this month didn't go the way a client, he wrote a bunch of proposals, they didn't come in, you know, blah, blah. but to prep for our mentoring session, he took the time that, that day to add up all the other revenue streams and what was going on. And he was shocked that he had exceeded his target again. I mean, he did it. There was no, you know, the point of this book isn't to saying Jay's a super mentor. That's missing the message. The point is everybody has this within them. And I've tried to lay out the steps for you to follow. And seeing that Vin could do it should show everyone within the sound of my voice that they can do it. And, you know, it's amazing what humans can do. I mean, Everything on this world was done by stubborn people. You know, that's what makes history. That's what makes all change. Believe in yourself and you're halfway to the finish line.
If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So inside of helping and empowering and coaching and assisting and supporting whichever verb they use in bringing an awakening, Vince potential, uh, he was very motivated. You gave him a path. You, you, you helped guide him towards his path and finding his way and believing himself. Was there a particular method or tool that really helped with the process? Or was it just super easy? You know, it was inevitable. No. It was going to succeed. Um, so with any mentor-mentor-mentee relationship, mm -hmm. both sides have to learn and both sides have to trust. So the hardest part is building that trust in the beginning. Mm. Here's this old dude, everything he's saying doesn't make any sense. He's wrong, you know, I can't stand him, but I got nothing else going, I'll, I'll, I'll play along. That was literally where it started. Um, and, and when he then saw things come together, his superpower turned out to be, when he heard his voice objecting to something, he would pause and say, Am I objecting out of pride or out of data? Do I have a reason why I disagree or am I just disagreeing? And if he didn't have a reason, he'd trust the process. And that's a big step. You know, I would love to work in a corporation where everybody communicated that way. It doesn't happen. Um, but there is no single path and there is no single mentor. You're going to need a series of mentors in your career at each stage. I mean... Bill Gates' mom said, I, I really want you to reach out to this guy, Warren Buffett, because you're going to be dealing with things that only he would know how to guide you. I mean, how do you mentor a guy who suddenly becomes the richest guy in the world? Well, the number two richest guy in the world might be a good place to start. And they bonded and became great friends. And it wasn't about, look how much money I have or look what I bought. Neither were materialistic. Um, so, you know, Zuckerberg had uh, Steve Jobs as a mentor. I mean, Oprah Winfrey had Barbara Walters. I mean, it's so important to have mentors in your life. I was, I was lucky. I didn't get a mentor till later in life. Um, I had never had a boss. I'd started my own company and all that stuff. And one day I'm in corporate world and I have no idea how these big giant companies survive. I mean, it's, it was bizarre land. It was literally Alice in Wonderland. I'm in the, through the looking glass. I mean, most people have no relationship to the bottom line and could care less, and it's all politics. And my mentor turned out to be Richard Branson's original partner and founding Virgin. Mm. And so I go from running a little company to you know running the world's largest music company at a time when Napster was putting a music company out of business and we're laying off you know tons of people. Your your business gets cut in half in one year. I mean, it's it's game over. And this so, is Ken Berry you're talking about, right? Yeah, Ken Berry. Um, and a great guy and a, and a smart guy. And, and, you know, much like Richard, you know, nobody in his family thought he'd amount to anything because he's got a, a sibling that's like a doctor and an engineer. And he's the one that just started, you know, a music company. And so I'd go to, I'd go to Ken with these wacky ideas. And then he'd tell me why they don't work. He didn't say, that's stupid don't do that. You're an idiot. You don't understand how the music industry works. He'd say, this is why it won't work. Well, that then gives you the tools to find the path around. 
And I'll give you the most brilliant one that came out of that exercise that, that most people wouldn't understand from the outside world. In the beginning, when piracy was stealing everything, people wanted to know, why didn't the music companies work faster to make digital music possible? Well, it turns out none of them had the legal rights to release digital music. You needed artists to sign off and say, yes. Mm. And so their hands were tied. They had all the masters, but they didn't have the rights to do this. So mm. how do you solve that problem? Well, most people would like to get revenue. Many artists aren't alive. It's their kids and grandkids, you know, whatever. So what we did was we made a list of every major artist that had ever sued or audited the label, like it was adversarial, you know, start with the Beatles and work on down. And it ended up that there was 90 some bands on that list. You know, the name of every one of them. These are superstars. We're not going to deal with that yet. But everybody else that's just thrilled to get a royalty check and doesn't ask questions, we're putting them in every deal I can think of. And if somebody objects, then we'll deal with it. But nobody objected. People were thrilled to get money. So internet radio and downloads and, and iTunes and all these things came out of that. And then my job was to spend two years flying around to meet every band member of those 90 bands or their, or their descendants or their spouses or their lawyers or their managers and explain, here's how much of your music got stolen. Here's how much we could sell. Choice is up to you. And by the time I left EMI, we had the list down to five no's. Mm. And they were for irrational reasons. And many people called these artists stupid and incredible things. And I'm like, yeah, they're so stupid. You go write something two minutes long that takes you a half an hour that earns you $40 million, right? You know, yeah. they think differently. And the highest pride moment of my entire music business uh, career was one that wasn't the making the big bucks or doing something. I am a huge Beatles fan. I mean, that's the band that just moved me as a child and my whole life and, you know, getting to meet some of them and do stuff. But they didn't go into digital for a whole bunch of reasons I won't go into. But... I was heard a story that when they were starting off, it really bugged them that coin-op jukeboxes, that their records would go in there, you know, a person buys a record once, and the place with the jukebox or the company with the jukebox gets all the money. Like, mm. they're making more money off that music than they are. And it would really bug mm. these guys when they were poor kids in Liverpool. And having been from the jukebox uh, in my career, somebody came along with the idea, why not have a digital jukebox? You don't need... CDs in there, you could have every song. Mm -hmm. So I went to him and said, here's the deal. You now get half of all the money that comes in when somebody plays your song. Now they didn't need the money. This wasn't going to add up to $20. This wasn't going to add up to anything. But the idea that could finally be treated fairly, it's mm. the only digital deal that they said yes to. And mm. I was out of my mind. And they said, but we still don't understand this internet stuff. The lawyers don't want us to do it. So we're only going to do five songs out of their catalog. Okay, it's a win. I'm happy. I, I, I finally closed the deal. They turned down a $100 million deal for somebody. I mean, I was like, I was happy. But now comes to the part where I tell the story, why I like it. So I said, which five songs? They go, Jay, you get to pick. Wow. So I was like, yay. You know, it's those, it's those, it's those moments, you know. Um, which five songs do you pick? What are your favorite five? It must be well, your favorite five. I, I, I picked the most popular. The one that, that put in the top five that isn't the top five, but was always one of my favorite songs is Nowhere Man. 
Um, mm. I just related to the song. Um, mm. So yeah, so so you know, I've had this improbable journey. I love living in a free country. I love that we have a middle class, and it's entrepreneurs that make that middle class, and it's being eviscerated. I mean, during the pandemic, the 150 wealthiest people in the U.S. doubled their wealth. And we now have more than 120 million at or below the poverty line. Um, if we don't teach people how to create businesses and jobs, we won't have a democracy. And we saw how parallel was close we got to that in January. These people aren't politically motivated. They're frustrated because the world that they bought into, get a good job and you can raise your family and send them. The world from post-war America, where the average price of a house was two years salary, and you only had to have one worker, and you know, wages have stagnated since 1984. Today's factories produce twice as much as they did in, in the 1980s with one-third of the employees. So we failed these people. We failed to teach them how to get their piece of the American dream, how they can participate and make the world better. And you don't need to go to special schools and you don't need you know, special families or fancy degrees. Um, and so that's my mission with whatever time I've left, not just here, but it's disappearing globally. And so other countries that don't have entrepreneurial heroes, how can we install that? How can we make in, in, in Mexico, set up a Semana de Entrepreneur. I'm horrible with the language, but Entrepreneur Week. It's like Shark Week, except with entrepreneurs. And the president of Mexico did a big speech. It was, it was beautiful. And, and so that's why I still do this. And it gives me great pride and passion to see the, the seeds that I'm planting. I won't live long enough to see the trees, but I'll, I'll get to see lots of sprouts. Well, I mean... Seeing one person's life change, Vin, right? Now he has a belief. He's broken his mental four-minute mile. So now he can go out and create new jobs and you know live the life that he wants to live. And thanks to and you. He, and he can pay it forward because I instilled that in him as well. So he can mm -hmm. teach others and he can go and speak and, 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 and you know carry the torch. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate your um, evolution of your purpose. Because in your book, you had said in the beginning was your kids. And then it was writing the book, Disrupt You. And then you got positive feedback from readers all over the world. And then now you have identified this revitalization of the global middle class as your new why, your new purpose in life, right? Your new mission. And you had in the book very skillfully talked about exactly what you just said. You know, uh, 140 million people have low income or really poor. And, you know, having a college degree doesn't guarantee, um, you know, higher income or job satisfaction or life satisfaction. These are all important points. And now we have research to actually show that, as you alluded to earlier, too, in the beginning of January, these people. You know, this is a small glimpse of, you know, if this um, wealth disparity continue to uh, expand, what what what's to come? So, a lot of context to this question. So, if this is your new mission in life, 
right? You want to help more and more people to do what Vin has accomplished. Um, what is, from your perspective, the mechanism that's going to bring that transformation? So it's interesting when you talk about people that have online courses and all of that, it doesn't matter what the subject matter is, most people tap out. So it's, it's proved very ineffective. Um, a book is still the best tool that I know to get a lot of accessible information, digestible information and actionable information into a form factor that you can go to again and again. Um, I'm, I'm humbled by the number of people that tell me I've read your book four times. I, I read it every year. I read it at the start, you know, give it to my employee, what, whatever that, that, you know, I'm trying to just provide the tools. So that's a way to scale. Another way to scale is a teacher wrote me on Disrupt You and said, you know, I teach in, 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 in inner city and my students see two choices, you know, work at Mickey D's or go to prison. I mean, they really don't see, you know, a third option and I'm teaching entrepreneurship. Can I adapt your book? And I said, go, go ahead. And she turned it into a course and a workbook and she won teacher of the year. Yeah. And then I used my life connections. I leaned on HP and said, you know, you guys are a big printing company. Why don't you print copies of this for every boys and girls club? So, mm. you know, this is how I scale it out. I try to empower an entrepreneur in each of the countries where it comes out in that language. I let them earn the money from the book. I let them put the connections together and figure out how to use that as a platform to launch what they want to do. And, uh, you know, it's been inspiring to see how somebody went, didn't think that they could achieve. Suddenly, you know, you're meeting the prime minister and, you know, they're, they're suddenly at the center of, of their nation uh, because they're doing something important. So if you're hearing my voice and it's not in your language, you know, email me and we'll, we'll, we'll talk and, and I'll help you make it. So there's still a whole mm. lot of languages out there. But anyway, I think our time's come to an end. Mm. Okay. I thank you for it. Um, if you go to my, my website, jsamet.com, there's free workbooks that are companions to each of the two books. So just click on the link and I will send you the workbooks for free so you can start these exercises right now. And I hope that I uh, can ease and speed your journey to success. Hey, Jay, I want to take a moment to just really acknowledge you for the willingness to have a conversation with the audience and, and myself and answer these questions that all entrepreneurs uh, take from you know being a warrior to uh, a commander to a king to an elder. And thank you so much for just the willingness and the generosity you share tactically as well as mindset, you know, what it actually takes to really go after this life of fulfillment and impact. So thank you so much for just being here and sharing yourself so generously with us. Stay safe.